Well, this is sermon number four in our series on the Gospel of Luke, one of the four accounts of Jesus' life, birth, miracles, teachings, death, and resurrection. Now, I grew up in the 80s, and I'll admit I'm a little nostalgic for things like the Indiana Jones uh, movie series. And when I studied the text for this week's sermon, it immediately jumped into my mind that one of the most memorable scenes in the third Indiana Jones movie The Last Crusade perfectly relates to what the characters in the first chapter of Luke are going through. That's why I've titled my sermon, Indiana Jones Was Right. Now you're thinking, okay, the stress has got to him. He's finally losing it. Don't worry, it'll all make sense a little bit later as we go along. In the first half of the book of the Bible, the the book of Proverbs, it says this, Proverbs 69, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. That's really one of the challenges of being a human being. We don't always know what's coming next. A man named Henry Clay Turnbull once said, the Lord never builds a bridge of faith except under the feet of the faith-filled traveler. If he builds the bridge five yards ahead, it wouldn't be a bridge of faith. That which... Is Is that a test of faith? That's awesome. (laughs) That which is of sight is not of faith. Taking a step or leap of faith is often what God calls us to do. There's probably no better scene in any movie that captures this better than Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. We're going to dim the lights and crank up the sound. World of God. No, Henry. Try not to talk.
The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, our life is lived by faith. We do not live by what we can see in front of us. Jesus himself said, according to your faith, let it be to you. Now, a wrong way to take that scene and concept would be to imagine it as a completely irrational, throw my brain away, leap of faith into the dark. It's a leap of faith, but in the movie, if you watch it carefully, it's a leap of faith built on the accurate words of Indiana Jones' father, Henry's diary that Indiana's holding in his hands. It's a leap of faith built on his experience of the first two trials that he made it through, both of which proved the words of the book to be true. Now that is very analogous to what the people in our passage today, Luke 1, 57 through 66, experience. Two weeks ago, I preached on the angel Gabriel bringing God's promise to Zechariah the priest. Zechariah did not believe what the angel told him at that time, that he and his wife Elizabeth, even though they were older, they were advanced in age, they would still miraculously have a son. As a result of Zechariah's unbelief, Zechariah has been unable to speak for nine months. And our passage today picks up the action nine months later. But the focus switches from Zechariah to the friends, neighbors, and community members that are witness to the birth of this baby who would grow up to be John the Baptist. We're going to pick up the account in Luke 1, verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. Lots of babies are born every single day. But this people in this village have known this particular birth was unusual and special. Elizabeth has been unable to have a child her entire life. She is barren. And that, in first century Jewish culture, was a very shameful thing. Now she is ready to give birth and everyone is excited for her. That's why it says in verse 58, when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been merciful to her, everyone shared her joy. It's an interesting scene. They ask Elizabeth, so what are you going to name the baby? And her reply is, his name is John. And they are shocked. That tips us off right away that something cultural is going on here. In our Canadian culture, parents can name their child anything they want. Sometimes you kind of shake your head at some of the names you hear, but regardless, it's their choice. They can do whatever they want. Not so in the first century Jewish culture. Turns out that the typical baby boy would have been either a bearer of his father's name or his grandfather's name. The friends and neighbors are essentially expecting Zechariah Jr. But Elizabeth says no. His name will be John. The crowd is puzzled and they're wondering, does the father agree? 
As I read over this passage and studied this week, it really jumped out at me that the, this crowd of friends and neighbors and relatives that have gathered for the birth, they really go through three stages of belief. And this is the first stage of belief, mentally comprehending the facts. The crowd understands Elizabeth's reply, his name is John, but they don't believe it. They get it with their heads, but they don't believe it with their hearts. It shocked them. It was different than their cultural custom. That's why they have to ask Zechariah for confirmation. Two weeks ago in the sermon, this is where Zechariah was at. He understood what the angel Gabriel said, but he didn't believe it in his heart. Now, you and I may be almost 2,000 years removed from this scene, but you know what? We as human beings, we haven't changed a lot have we? All of us can relate at some level to this. God calls us to take a step of faith. Our heads understand it, but our hearts are lagging way behind. Maybe some of us here this morning can mentally comprehend that in order to follow Jesus, in order to begin the Christian life, we need to put our full faith in him. Our heads get it, but our hearts are way behind. We aren't ready to take that step. We don't trust that God has provided a bridge across the chasm. God says, trust me when all kinds of bad things happen in life. Maybe we get that bad initial diagnosis from the doctor. Our, our heads understand God is faithful. God will care for me. God will see me through this trial. But our hearts can't quite believe it. That is where the crowd of friends and neighbors are at, the first stage of belief. So what is Zechariah's response? Let's continue on, verses 63 to 65, and find out. He asked for a writing tablet. To everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. So Zechariah asked for a writing tablet. I was curious what exactly would that have looked like in the first century. Apparently it was a wooden block and they covered it with a thick layer of wax and they would have had a really sharp uh, either wooden or metal stick and that's what they wrote in the wax with. And so they hand that to Zechariah and he writes, his name is John. Now the crowd is shocked because both Elizabeth and Zechariah are defying their cultural custom. Then, more astonishingly, John's inability to speak is taken away. This guy hasn't said one word for nine straight months. Now, I did my nerd thing this week and translated verses 64 to 66 from the original Greek. And it yielded some interesting insights. Here's what I learned. The NIV, the New International Version, translates verse 64. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. The Darren International Version, the DIV, yet to be published. And I learned that it says, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue. Now, it sounds odd in our language to say his tongue was set free. Like, imagine this little tongue running down the road. I'm free, I'm free. That's not what it means. See, they believe that the tongue was the organ of speech. So in order to be able to utter words and talk, it had to be 
set free. Ah, that makes a little more sense. And the first thing out of his mouth is praising God. And the literal meaning of that word praising God is saying good things about God. Now, I put myself in Zechariah's shoes. You haven't said one word for nine months. There is your wife. There is your brand new baby. There's all of your friends, family, relatives, neighbors. Everyone's there. I'm not sure saying good things about God would be the first words out of my mouth. And yet, for Zechariah, it is. Amazing stuff. Now, there's a progression of faith here. Zechariah demonstrates for us where he was at nine months ago was to hear it, mentally comprehend it, and not believe it. But in this scene, we can see Zechariah immediately. doesn't matter what the cultural custom was to not name it John, whatever. God told him to name it John. He immediately obeys. We can see growth and transition in Zechariah. Now, the fascinating thing is the reaction of the friends, neighbors, and the big crowd who had gathered. Luke 1.65 says, All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. Now, that word awe really contains the ideas that they were filled with fear, alarm, or fright. And there's a sense in which these friends and neighbors, they cognitively believed in God. They had been Jewish people. They had faithfully gone to the synagogue. They'd probably been to the temple in Jerusalem several times in their life. These were faithful Jews. They believed in God. Yet, when God shows up in their town doing miracles, what's the reaction? Uh Uh-oh, God shows up. Alarm, fear, fright. And that's a very, very human tendency. We want to keep God over there. Let's keep him at arm's length. Then he's safe. He can't interfere with our lives. Oh, we definitely believe in God. But what if he actually showed up in our lives? That's a very interesting reaction. And it says in the NIV, Throughout the whole country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. The, the real sense of the words there, it was the number one item of discussion in that village or town. This is what people were talking about. The crowd is so much like us. The crowd believed in God. They believed he could do miraculous things. But it was a way different deal when he started doing it personally in their town and in their lives. The miraculous birth of John to an older couple way past their childbearing years. The special name God has chosen for this child in defiance of local custom. And the miraculous restoration of John's speech all come together to put fear and awe into this crowd. Can you see the progression? At first, the assembly of friends and neighbors were just comprehending the facts with their heads. Just giving mental assent. That, however, is never what true faith is about. It's never meant to stay at that first level. It's way more profound and life-changing than that. Now, throughout this, through this series of miracles in their neighborhood, they've been challenged to go deeper in their understanding. That is what God calls each one of us to do. We are not to be content with a surface-level 
humdrum, yeah, yeah, heard it all before kind of faith. It's way deeper, more, more life-changing, and more fulfilling than that. Came across a fascinating story of a man named Dave Wingett this week. It was on the Campus Crusade for Christ website. And this is what he says. He says, I was raised in the church. On Sundays, we went to church in the morning and the evening. We went to Wednesday night prayer meetings too. By the time I was in high school, I began to resent going to church so much. Reluctantly, my devout parents stopped insisting that I go. I began to drift away from the church. I only continued to drift further and further away from my Christian upbringing. When I was 18, I started at the University of Illinois. As a very young child, I knew I wanted to be a scientist, specifically an astronomer. So when I began attending college, I chose to pursue science academically. I looked there for the answers to the mysteries of life. When I studied anthropology, the study of human beings and cultures, I began to get a broader perspective on world religions. I began to feel the only reason I was a Christian was an accident of birth. If I had been born in Japan or China or anywhere else, I thought, whatever my family there would have believed would have been what I was raised with. I began questioning my understanding of Christianity and looked at all the religions of the world. They all claim to be correct. And I thought Christianity can't be the only truth. Or maybe it's not true at all. All these different truths that people hold are contradictory to each other. So there can't be one truth. Over time, I eventually landed at being an atheist. I started out and arguing and debating. I studied the Bible quite a bit as a child. I knew Scripture, and that made me dangerous in debates. I had a list of 50 examples where I thought the Bible was contradictory. I would often bring these up and considered myself a fire-breathing atheist. My wife and I eventually had five children. She was a cultural Christian. But when I challenged her faith, she too became an atheist. But sometime later, it became obvious to us that our two oldest boys didn't have any real spiritual or moral compass. My wife and I spent a great deal of time talking and worrying about this. We realized that neither of us had gained a spiritual or moral compass at school. That happened by going to church in our childhood. Because of this, we decided that we need to find some religion in the world and use that to guide our kids and get involved. We didn't want to just dump them off, and drive away. We realized, though, that we would have to find some place to get connected. In our minds, though, the religion had to be at least plausible. So once again, my wife and I started investigating world religions. My background in anthropology, what we were looking for was a religion that wasn't archaeologically falsifiable. They wanted hard archaeology evidence. In the midst of this search, we began looking for places for our youngest son to go to daycare. The only one we found that would take him was a daycare run by a Christian church. That inevitably led us to run annoyingly into the pastor. He began to meet with us for coffee, and each time we met, he encouraged us to go a little step further. He recommended a few books to read, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. It was interesting to me in Strobel's book that he dealt with archaeology and extra-biblical evidence. One by one, all the objections I raised debating as an atheist for many years fell away. 
About two years later, we went to Nashville over spring break to visit one of my former grad students and discuss our scientific project we were collaborating on. I was caught off guard when he noticed books by C.S. Lewis and Philip Yancey in my car and suddenly asked me in an uncharacteristically aggressive tone, are you a Christian? I steeled myself for an intellectual attack, the kind I had dealt out so many times myself. But I found myself compelled by the example of the Apostle Peter and said simply, yes, I am a Christian. He was shocked I was a Christian, but the attack never tamed. He too turned out to be a believer. I was more shocked than him, however, because I realized at that moment I truly had crossed the line. I was a committed follower of Christ. In that instant, I discovered it took more faith to disbelieve than to believe. If I were to deny Christ, I might as well argue that gravity didn't exist or that the earth was flat. But Jesus did exist, and he still does. To place my faith in him used to seem like the dumbest thing I could do. But now I know the truth. I would be a fool not to. There's someone who went through all the stages of disbelief to belief. Now, this crowd that had come to see the birth of John the Baptist, how did it end for them? Well, verse 66 tells us, Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. All that uh, my translation offered out of that was basically the same, except the, really the idea that when the, it says, everyone who heard about this kept it in mind, pondered it, wondered about it. See, these events were so spectacular, so amazing in this little town, that these people couldn't stop thinking about it. It rolled over and over in their minds and in their hearts. And something amazing happened as they thought about it, as they pondered, as they tried to process all that they were seeing God do. Their focus switched from the present to the future. And they said God wouldn't go to this much trouble. God wouldn't do all these miracles if this baby wasn't supposed to grow up and be someone absolutely amazing. And that's exactly what the angel told John a little earlier in Luke chapter 1 when he first met Zechariah. Luke 1, 14 to 17 says these words, He will be a joy and a delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring many of the people of Israel back to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This baby is going to have the monumental task of preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah, the rescuer of the human race. And that is the deep and profound place we all need to come to. The people in the village had gone from mental ascent to be challenged to true belief, and finally they had come to look at the future and be fully filled with hope 
that God was going to save them and rescue them. I love this quote about hope. It says, man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but only for one second without hope. Hope is absolutely vital to us as human beings. And the same God who intervened in history to give hope to an old priest, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, the people of that town in the hill country of Judea, and ultimately the entire human race, that same God caused a baby to be born in the most unlikely of circumstances. God, that same God gives hope to every single one of us every day. This week, I prayed for three people facing a massive health challenge. But they have hope. Why? Because of Jesus. I talked with someone in our community this week who can't quite bring themselves to faith in Christ. They have objections, things that are standing in their way, and they can't get past them. But I have hope for them. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will give them vision and faith to see the truth. I have faith that God will continue to transform our community. Why? Because the good news of the gospel, the central message of Christianity gives me hope. So when you think about all of this today, where are you at? Are you at the first level like the crowd of neighbors and friends were? Just giving mental assent to God? Yeah, yeah, there's a God up there somewhere. Or are you at the next level? Surprise, shock, fear that there really is such a person as Jesus Christ. He really is God in a body. He really did invade our world 2,000 years ago, and he really does deserve our full faith, trust, and allegiance. That's a good and necessary level. There is one more level beyond confidence that he is who he says he is, and he will do what he promised. Living on this third level is what gives us the kind of hope that can withstand the worst that life has to throw at us. Maybe we need to be a little bit more like Indiana Jones and take that leap of faith. God's never failed in the past and he won't start now. God fulfilled his promise to Elizabeth and Zechariah. John grew up to be an incredibly mighty man of God. As amazing as John was, he was ultimately the one who just prepared the way for the coming of Jesus. We have the fulfillment of this entire story. We have the fulfillment, the greatest promise in all of history. Jesus himself is the only one worth following. Amen? We're going to invite the worship team back up.